0: Would you bow with me in a word of prayer as we begin our message? Lord Jesus Christ, we worship you this morning. You are all that we have. And Lord, you are all that we need. We thank you that you are sovereign over the wind and the waves. You are sovereign over the storms in this world. You are sovereign over the storms that beset our nation. You are sovereign over the storms that beset our lives. And Lord, we thank you that not only are you sovereign, Jesus, but you are faithful to us. And that, Lord, we know that you are working for our good. And so, God, as we go into this election on Tuesday, we know, Father, that you have good plans for us and that Christ is Lord of the nations. And so, God, we pray that you would bless this nation. Lord, do not give us leaders that our nation deserves. Lord, give us leaders that would lead us to you. Lord, we pray for righteous leaders in this country from the national level all the way down to local governments. Lord, we pray for leaders in our nation who would be humble, who would stick to what's true and would not be uh, into politics for personal ambition or for financial gain. God, we just pray for righteousness in our nation. Lord, our nation needs You desperately. We, We need Your guidance. We need Your wisdom. Lord, in many ways, our nation has lost its way. We've lost our sight of You. God, we live in a nation where over a million children are killed before they're even born every year. God, we grieve the moral collapse of our nation. And God, we pray that You would have mercy on us. That You would restore the soul of this nation. That You would bring us back to You. Because we know, Lord, that that a people cannot keep pushing hard away from You forever without ever being held accountable. God, we pray that You would be in the American churches. Lord, our churches need You. Lord, turn the American churches away from trendy methodologies and away from hip atmosphere as if that was what was going to save the church. And Lord, bring Your church in America back to the Word, back to the Gospel. Lord, we pray that the churches in America would once again sing that song, All We Have Is Christ, that our whole, all we have to offer the world is Christ. Lord, bring us back to a focus on the gospel. Lord, we pray that for South Shore Baptist Church. Lord, protect us from sin, protect us from disunity. Bless the people in this church, Lord, that we as a congregation would follow you. That, That we would not just simply wring our hands about problems in the world, but that, Lord, we would stand up and say, Lord, use us as your light here in New England, here in Massachusetts. And God, we pray for your church around the world because we know that your church transcends American boundaries, that it is an international body, that you have Christians from every tribe and tongue and nation. Lord, we pray for our Missionary of the Week this week, Pam and Darren Prince, who are in London ministering among uh, Bengali uh, Muslims in East London, Lord, and in training and encouraging teams going out all over the world. Lord, bless their ministry. We pray for the Gospel to to impact the people who live near them. And now, Lord, as we open up Your Word to study it, we pray that You would speak to our hearts. Holy Spirit, we pray that You would draw Your sword and plunge it into our souls so that we might come to life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we invite any children here, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church. And as our children are being dismissed, I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, it's on page 1185 in the Pew Bible. Hebrews chapter 3, page 1185. Well, we're back in Hebrews. Remember, we were studying this before the missions conference. We were working our way through Hebrews. And today we're at Hebrews chapter 3, 1 to 6 is what we'll be studying, page 1185. Let me just read the text and then we'll get right into it. It says, Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what, what be said uh, in the future. But Christ is a faithful as a Son over God's house. And we are His house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. You know, God is so faithful to us. And yet, we can be so unfaithful to Him. You know, we're just saying that Him, Great is Thy faithfulness. But what if we had to write a counterpoint hymn to ourselves? You know, what would we call it? Great is our unfaithfulness. Uh, as Christians, we struggle against sin and against unfaithfulness in our lives. Uh, you know, when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. And when the Holy Spirit came into our lives, he broke the power of sin So the penalty has been paid, the power has been broken, we're no longer slaves to sin, and yet the presence of sin still remains. And so this is the struggle we have as Christians, that we're forgiven, sin's power has been broken, and yet sin has not yet been completely removed from our experience. And so even as Christians, we still wrestle against these, these motives and desires that seem to spring up from within. You know, Even after you've been a Christian for some time, they just keep coming out. Selfish ambitions, vanity, pride, greed, lust, it all just seems to keep coming out of us. And usually it percolates up, it starts as a thought. It comes into our thoughts and we begin thinking unclean thoughts or angry thoughts or vengeful thoughts or, or whatever. Controlling thoughts, you know, we want to have things our way. And if we give heed to those thoughts and we let them sort of grow to maturity, they eventually start coming out in us in terms of attitudes and things we say to people and things we do. And we're like, what's wrong with me? I've been a Christian for 15 years, for 25 years, and and sin is still a battle. Temptation is still a battle. And so I think it's one of the hardest things we struggle with as Christians is the struggle to stay faithful to Christ. This is it. I think this is harder than dealing with illness dealing with financial difficulties in our lives, dealing with family problems, those things are all very difficult. But for the serious Christian who desires to follow Christ, you will quickly find that the biggest obstacle you face is yourself. That the biggest problem I have that keeps getting in the way is me and my unfaithfulness and my tendencies toward unfaithfulness to Christ. And so that's, this is what the whole book of Hebrews is about. Hebrews is written from, by a guy, we don't know who it is, who wrote to a bunch of people who we're not really sure who they were. But the person who wrote it knew that the recipients were struggling with the issue of faithfulness and that they were in danger of kind of drifting away and giving up on their faith and sort of going soft on their commitment to Christ. And I think it's something that, that I can relate to as a Christian in the middle of my Christian journey, the struggle to stay faithful to Jesus. Uh, and sometimes maybe that's where you're at. You're like, you know what, this is just how I am. And you, you're almost ready to give up the fight. Like, no, this is how I am. I, I just have this addiction. I'm just going to always have it. It's how it is. I'll never have increasing victory over that. Or, or you know, that's just my personality. I, I'm just an intense person, or I'm just a, I have a temper, or I'm just, this is how I am. You know, I took a personality test. I took the Myers-Briggs test. And it said, this is the kind of person I am. So, you know, if the Myers-Briggs test said it, then obviously that's truth, and that's set in stone. So that's who I must be. You know? Th- that's what determines who I am. Or maybe it's like, I grew up in this really messed up family. And I'm just—I'm going to be messed up my whole life. I'm never going to grow. I can never change because my personality and my family and my temperament are what determines who I am. And so, why strive? Why try? Why seek to grow in Christ? And the author of Hebrews just wants to grab us by the lapels and say, "No, you can grow in faithfulness in Christ. You can walk." in greater holiness than what you've been experiencing. And so the whole book of Hebrews is a call toward revival and awakening among Christians who are struggling in their faith. It just wakes us up out of our apathy and out of our complacency and in some ways despair and hopelessness where we just kind of resign ourselves. And what he does here in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, especially in verse 1, is he wants to tell us what we need to do To fight back against unfaithfulness. He wants to give us a prescription in a sense to fight back against this indwelling sin that we will continue to face our entire Christian lives. And he says in chapter 3 verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, here we go, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. If you're using a pew Bible, please reach to the pew rack in front of you take out a pew pencil. And please underline in the pew Bible those words, if you don't mind. Just, I mean, write it right in the Bible. Just underline. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. That is the command. In other words, the way we strive for greater faithfulness to Christ is we have to allow Christ and a vision of Him to fill up our hearts and our minds, to fix our thoughts on Jesus. Alright, let's 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 dive into that one verse now and kind of pull it apart a little bit. But before we get to the phrase, fix your thoughts on Jesus, let's just quickly read the words that come before it because everything comes in a context. It says in verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. So notice it starts with the word therefore. In other words, chapter 3, verse 1 is drawing a conclusion from what comes before it. So let's read just the verse that comes right before it, chapter 2, verse 18. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So again, the context of this passage is about the battle against temptation and unfaithfulness in our lives. Therefore, because we have Christ who's going to help us in the battle of temptation, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? That God calls us holy brothers and sisters. That we're the family of God. So in other words, when Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins and break the power of sin, He also brought us into His family. So God looks at Christians as if they were holy, even though we still struggle. This is just a wonderful encouragement that God puts on His Jesus-colored glasses and sees through the sacrifice of Jesus Christians as if they were holy and forgiven. So he calls us holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling. And then here's the command. Here's how we battle against unfaithfulness. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. That's a great image. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. You see that those three words in English, fix your thoughts? In Greek, it's just one word. And really what the word means is, I guess you could say it's, it's kind of like to stare at something. To just keep looking at something intently. You know, When you look at something so intently that you kind of get tunnel vision and everything else... Around you, It kind of fades into the, the periphery of your consciousness. And, and you zero in on one thing and you stare at it and look at it. That's the idea behind this word. Fix your thoughts. Fix your gaze. Look intently at Christ. Uh, another place, just to give you a, kind of a word picture here, another place we see this Greek word is in the Gospels when Jesus is talking about do not judge others. And he says, why do you look at, that's the word, the speck in your brother's eye, but you ignore the log in your own eye. You know, it's like if you ever try to take a speck out of someone's eye, you have to look like, you know, really intently. Or have you ever got an eyelash in your eye? You know, yeah, no, yeah, I got it. You can't concentrate, so you go like to the bathroom mirror and you're looking in the mirror and you're like, yeah. and, th- and there could be a brass band going behind you. And you would just be focused on that eyelash. So that's the word. That kind of intense focus that it would take to pick something out of somebody's eye. So it's like, focus with intensity on Christ. Put, let Him fill up your, your vision so that other thoughts, even thoughts about sin and temptation, are just going to recede as you pour the, put the horsepower of your mind and heart into thinking about Christ. Notice two other things about this command to fix your thoughts on Christ. Let me just pull out two other things. The first is, You'll notice it is a command in the plural. Now, you don't see this in English. See how it says fix your thoughts? In English, that could be singular or plural because we use the word your for singular or plural. In Greek, it's very clear. It's a plural command. So it's not just, hey, you individual Christian, fix your thoughts on Christ, but it's, hey, all of you body of believers in a local church, fix your thoughts on Christ. So fixing our thoughts on Christ is something we have to do together. It's something where we have to, as a body, keep encouraging each other. You try to follow Christ and fix your thoughts on him by yourself, I'm telling you, that is a losing battle. It's too difficult. Uh, I've said this before. I'll say it again. you probably heard me say this before, but I'll just keep saying it. Following Jesus is a team sport. And the team that God has put together is called a local church. And so he calls these little teams together, and we gather together, and one of the reasons we gather is to just like keep encouraging each other. Like, focus on Christ. Focus on Christ. Right, right, right. Thank you. I forgot this week. Focus on Christ. And so we gather together on Sunday morning to sing songs about Him and pray to Him and, and talk about His Word together. Um, and, and we get together during Bible studies during the week to keep spurring each other on. The major theme in Hebrews. To keep spurring each other on to focus on Christ. So this is a corporate command. You all fix your thoughts on Christ. Might be how we translate it, uh, where we not living this far north of the Mason Dixon. But but it's uh, th- that's the idea. All y'all focus your thoughts on Jesus. And the other thing I notice about this command is that it's a very personal command. Uh, it's very relational. In other words, when he says fix your thoughts on Jesus, don't just think that means mere intellectual focus. It's not like simply doing a Sudoku puzzle or a crossword puzzle or working on your taxes where you're focusing your mind. But it's just kind of a mental exercise or an activity. In other words, focusing on Jesus doesn't just mean you go, okay, I'm closing my eyes. I have in my mind's eye a Middle Eastern looking man in a white robe. He has a blue sash. I can see a beard, long hair. He has a baby lamb in his arms. Okay, I got it. No, you're not getting it. It's not just mentally focusing in, in a pure, abstract, intellectual sense. Really, it's about our hearts being filled up with Christ. Again, look at the personal language here. He says, Fix your thoughts. Well, first of all, he says, Holy brothers. So this is part of a family. This is a very relational context. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Those two titles, Apostle and High Priest, are very relational kinds of concepts. Jesus is an Apostle. Have you ever thought about Jesus as an Apostle? That's kind of weird. Only place in the Bible he's called an Apostle is right here in this verse. We think of the Apostles as the Twelve Disciples. You know, they're the Twelve Apostles. They were. But the Greek word Apostle just means he who is sent. Uh, The the Greek verb Apostelo means I send. So in that sense, in a more general sense, Jesus is an Apostle. He was sent from God to whom? Us. So we're thinking about someone who has come to us from God personally to, to talk to us. He's also the high priest. Again, that's a very intimate personal office or position. The high priest is the person who would interface with God and interface with the congregation. The, the priest was the person who would take and bear the sins of the people to God. So this is not some far-off person. The high priest is someone intimately interconnected with the people whom he represents. So, when you hear this phrase, fix your thoughts on Jesus, don't just think of a bear, okay, I'm going to think about Jesus now. <laughs> Thinking about Jesus. No. This is about, you know, it's like when your wife or your girlfriend says, pay attention to me. You know, what does she mean? Just to think about her? No, she means like, connect with her and, and listen and engage with her. And let your heart be filled up with her, not just a bare mental thought. So, if I were to paraphrase what's being said here, I might take the whole thing and sort of paraphrase it this way. Treasure Jesus. Cherish Christ. Savor and delight in the Lord. So not just a bare mental belief, like, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, but it's it's knowing Him and it's savoring and relating to Him. We battle unfaithfulness by treasuring and savoring the Savior. That's, if you kind of take the whole thing, it seems to me that's what's really being said here. So, as we battle against sin in our lives, the, the antidote is the Savior. It's letting our hearts and our minds be filled up with more and more of Christ, seeing His supremacy and His glory and His attributes. And as we do that, you know, sin will just fade. It, it, the, the power of sin fades in the presence of Christ. It's how it works. You know, why do I still sin? Well, I can blame it on a lot of things. You can blame it on, you know, other people, your circumstances, or how you were brought up, or whatever. But here's the bottom line you want to, this is, and this may be hard to hear, but this is the honest truth. The reason we still sin is because we love our sin more than we love our Savior. And if I really were to allow the Holy Spirit to enable me to love Christ more, then sin would become unattractive to me. I love sin more than I love my Savior. And when I put it that way and I stop blaming everyone else for my problems, then I go, wow, now I see what the issue is. I need to love Christ. And let me just say, that's what a Christian is. To be a Christian is simply to be someone who has come to savor Christ as Savior of their own lives. And, and, you know, I I don't know, maybe you haven't thought about it that way. You know, you can come to church. You can enjoy a sermon. You can like the music. You can appreciate the youth program or the children's program. You can say, boy, I'm really getting something out of this. But I want to stop and say, yeah, but do you savor and treasure Jesus as Savior? And if you're saying, "Eh, I don't know, I would say, keep going. You haven't quite come to understand what it means to really be a Christian, which is to savor Christ. It's one of the evidences of being a Christian, a love for Christ. Well then, let's move on to verses 2-6. to And I love verses 2-6 to because what happens here is that the author wants to help us savor and focus on Christ. So he's going to give us a, a little drill. He's going to help us think about Jesus. He doesn't just say, okay, the way to stay faithful is... You know, think on Christ. Fix your heart on Christ. Okay, go ahead and do that. Talk amongst yourselves. I'll get back to you. See how you did. No, no. He says, I want you to savor Christ and now I'm going to lead you in an exercise in doing that. So that's what we want to do in verses 2 to 6 is that we're going to have Jesus lifted up before us. We're going to take the great gem of Christ and we're going to turn it and look through a particular facet and see part of the, a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. So, in other words, we're not just going to say, fix your thoughts on Jesus. We're not going to be led to actually do it and see how it works. So, so I'm not just going to send you home with an assignment. Let's do it right now. Let's focus our thoughts on Jesus. And what we see in verses 2 to 6 is that the author will focus us on Jesus by comparing him to Moses. This is what he's going to do. So, let's follow the logic here. Verse 2. He, Jesus, was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. So you have faithful Jesus, faithful Moses. Verse 3, Jesus has been found worthy of a greater honor than Moses. So we're going we're gonna to focus on Jesus by comparing him to Moses and seeing how much greater Jesus is than Moses. So that means we've got to start with understanding who Moses was, which I'm sure you're all thinking about. I'm sure with everything going on this week, you've just been wrestling with Moses all week. I, I know. But for those few people here who weren't thinking about Moses all week and how great Moses was, let, let's just you know, think about that for a second together. You know, why is he being compared to Moses? Well, put very simply, when you look in the Bible, I think an argument can be made that Moses is the greatest man of God in the Bible. He's the pinnacle. He's the pinnacle. You want to talk about men of God who we would stand in awe of. At the top of the mountain is Moses, the greatest man of God in the Bible. Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt and he took them to the Red Sea and he came to Mount Sinai and he got the Ten Commandments from God and gave it to the people. I mean, he's the father of their nation. I was thinking, when you think of Moses, you know, maybe something comparable would be when we think of the founding fathers of our country. When we think of those amazing people who sacrificed themselves to lead us and who produced this amazing document called the Constitution. And in a sense, Moses was that guy for them. You know, my wife and I, a couple months ago, we watched the uh, HBO miniseries John Adams. Tremendous seven-part miniseries on this historical figure. And one of the things it did for us is it just stirred us to say, these are incredible people. I mean, we don't realize what kind of Americans these people were. And they kind of, you know, they make you feel ashamed about your own commitment to our country and when you see these founders like wow, these were amazing. The ideas they had, the vision they had, not that they were perfect, but they were incredible people. And so Moses is like that for the people of Israel, except even greater. He's their founding father who led them out of Egypt and who gave them the 10 commandments. But there's something else about Moses. He was also the man who had the closest communion with God of anyone that we can see in the Bible. Look back at at chapter 3, verse 2. It says, Moses was faithful in all God's house. Now look at verse 5. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house. Do you see that language of Moses being faithful as a servant in all God's house? That is being lifted right out of the Old Testament. So what I want to do now is I want you to put a bookmark here in Hebrews. I want to show you the passage it comes from because this passage gives us a vision for how great Moses was. Put a bookmark in Hebrews. Go back to the Old Testament book of Numbers. Fourth book of the Bible, Numbers chapter 12. It's on page 142. So bookmark Hebrews. We're coming back. But let's just go quickly to Numbers chapter 12, page 142 in the Pew Bible. So this is a story about Moses. They're out of Egypt. They got the Ten Commandments. They're kicking around in the wilderness, and there's some trouble in the family. We got trouble between Moses and his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam. They don't. They're not happy with Moses being the leader. They think they should be the leader of Israel. Aren't they just as good as Moses? And yeah, this is their brother. I mean, come on. They should be able to lead too. <clears throat> And what we're going to see here is Moses' greatness. So look at verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Uh, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? They asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. So here you have this inter family problem. I'm sure none of you who are adults and have adult siblings, ever have tension like this in your families. But uh, apparently they did back then. I know we don't have that today. But uh, but here's Moses getting in a fight with his adult siblings. And it's a fight over who should be the spokesperson for the people of God, who should be the leader of Israel. And they're kind of using this whole thing about him marrying a Cushite as a, kind of a pretext for all this. But now, compared to their pride, look at verse 3. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. That's one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. I think everyone in church leadership should be required to memorize that verse. This is what the leaders of the people of God need to be marked by, a a profound humility. And then it goes on, verse 4, At once the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, Come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance of the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When both of them stepped forward, he said, Listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. Here we go. Here's the line. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak how? Face to face. Clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. So with the prophets in the Old Testament... You know, they they would get a vision from God, or they'd see something weird in their dream, and they, sometimes they wouldn't even know what it is. They'd say, "Oh Lord, what does the vision mean?" And God says, "All right, I'm gonna have to explain this to you. I know it was weird. Let me tell you." And so the prophets had glimpses and visions and riddles, but that's not how it was with Moses. He was the greatest man of God ever to walk the face of the earth. With Moses, he went into the tent of the meeting, and he would stand in the manifested glory of God Himself and have a conversation like if Pastor Seth and I were to stand up here and talk to each other like this. And it was so profound and transformative that when he would come out of the tent of meeting, you know the story? His face was actually shining because it was like the residue of God's glory kind of got stuck to him or, or something weird. I don't understand it. But he would come out and, and it was so terrified the people, they said, could you put a veil on? So he had Moses with a veil because he was transformed by the presence of the glory of God. Just an amazing thing, right? You know, I was trying to think of an analogy to kind of connect with this emotionally. Have you ever known in your life one of the old prayer warriors of the church? The old prayer warriors. You know, those people who've been Christians for like 50, 40 years, and they have spent so long learning the art and practice of prayer that when they pray, it's, it's like they're just communing with God. Have you ever known one of the old prayer warriors of the church? We have, we've had some in our church. We have some in our church. They're, they're quiet. They're unassuming. They're like Moses, humble. They will never promote themselves. But if you ever have the privilege of praying with one of the old prayer warriors, it is really an amazing experience. Because when they pray, it's not like they're just saying, you know... Dear God, thank you for this day and we appreciate how great you are. But it's more like, it, it, sometimes it almost feels tangible like God has come into the room and they're having a close communion with God in a way that makes you crave that sort of intimacy and knowledge of God. And, and when you're done praying, you look at this old person sitting there with kind of an awe. Like, how, did, how have you come to know God like this in prayer? How did you learn to pray like that? And it's a lifetime of fellowship with God. Now, take that experience if you've ever been blessed with praying with one of the old prayer warriors and just multiply it. That's Moses. He didn't just have a feeling of God in the room. God actually stood there in His revealed presence. And Moses talked to Him face to face. And this is why God says to Aaron and to Miriam back in verse 8, Why then were you not afraid to speak against My servant Moses, I speak to him face to face, he sees the form of the Lord. And then verse 9, the anger of the Lord burned against them and he left them. And God brings judgment against Moses' brother and sister. So Moses is the greatest man. This is why, fast forward now 1,500 years to the time of Jesus, to the time of the writing of Hebrews, this is why Moses was held in such high esteem. Around the time of Christ, I mean, Moses was so high up there Uh, Let me just read you this little quote from uh, William Lane who wrote a commentary on Hebrews. He said, It is difficult to exaggerate the importance of Moses in Judaism and the veneration with which he was regarded. That's the right word. Moses was venerated by the Jews. So now, go back to Hebrews. Hebrews. We have this exalted person, Moses, who in Jewish literature around the time of Christ, in some literature, had almost become a godlike figure. And it says about him, verse 3, Jesus has been found worthy of a greater honor than Moses. Like, what? Be careful what you say. You know, last time someone put themselves above Moses, God got pretty ticked about it. You're going to put Jesus above Moses? Yes, greater honor. How so? Verse three. Just as the builder of the house has greater honor than the house itself. So we have this house imagery and yeah, Moses is part of the house, but Jesus builds it. For every house is built by someone and God is the builder of everything. Then here's verse five. Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is a faithful as a son over God's house. So do you see the contrast? Moses is a servant in Jesus is a son over. There's an intentional contrast being used there. Moses is a faithful servant in the house. Jesus is a faithful son over the house. He's so much. In fact, he is over the house. He made the house. <laughs> he's the maker and the son. And He's over the house. Yeah, Moses went and talked to God face to face. But Jesus... Is God face to face? Moses had the the radiance of God's glory reflected on his face. But Jesus, as it says in Hebrews chapter 1, is the radiance of God's glory. The exact representation of His being. When Moses saw the form of God in the tent of meeting, could it be that he was not actually seeing the Son in pre-incarnate form in the tent of meeting? The angel of the Lord, God's presence right there. Jesus before he became incarnate, the son standing there. He is the radiance of God's glory. And he's the faithful son over God's house. And now let's take this amazing thought and bring it home to our lives today. Verse six and ask the question, what's the house? We keep reading about a house. What's the house? Is it this building here on 578 Main Street? I love this building, but is this the house? Verse 6, Christ is a faithful son over God's house. Here we go. And we are his house. We are the house over which Jesus is the faithful son and the maker. He's made us. We're the church, the body of Christ. And He's made us, and He's faithful, and He's over us. It reminds me of the passage that Chris Hemmer preached on three Sundays ago, back in chapter 2. Let me just read you one verse. Look back at chapter 2, verse 11. Here we go. Both the one who makes men holy, that's Jesus, and, the, and those who are made holy, that's us, we're sinful people who have been made holy, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. So we are the house of God, or you might translate that better in English. We're the household of God. We're the family of God. We who were once spiritually homeless have been brought into the house of God. We who were once in the foster system of sin have been adopted into God's family. We who have no relation and feel disconnected from everything and disconnected from God through the faithfulness of Jesus on the cross have been brought into this family and He's the faithful Son over us. And that's why it says in chapter 3, verse 1, holy brothers, and you could say holy sisters too. That, that Greek word includes both concepts in this context. Holy brothers and sisters. The family of God. With God as our Father and Christ as our eldest brother and our Maker does anyone here see Jesus right now? Can you just... Is anyone here treasuring Jesus? Right now. We're going through this exercise. Do you feel your heart being filled up with wonder at Jesus? If that is the case, let me ask you this. How alluring does temptation seem to you right now? Like I feel like when I'm this full of Christ, I'm just impervious. I bring it on. I don't want that. I want Christ. You know, offering me temptation when I'm focused on Christ is like would be like offering me a earthworm sandwich. You know, when I have a, a cruise ship buffet in front of me. Like, what? Pfft, give me Christ. And so we fight, listen to this, we fight against unfaithfulness by savoring and treasuring Christ's faithfulness. We fight against our unfaithfulness by allowing our hearts to treasure and savor. Christ's faithfulness to us. And so I just encourage you, brothers and sisters, battle on, fight on, and the way you can grow in your faith is by having more of Christ, to savor more and more the gospel of what God has done to you, allowing your heart to be so overwhelmed by God's faithfulness to us that it just inspires us. As it says in verse 6, as we are His house, if we hold on to our courage or our confidence and hope and what's our courage and what's our confidence what's our hope it's Jesus and so it's being filled up more and more with Christ are you struggling with sin in your life do you feel that you're just kind of stuck you've kind of maybe even given up on fighting I just want to tell you get back in the fight get back in the race you are not just stuck the way you are forever there is something greater in this world than your family background than your sinful nature than your proclivities There is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. And Christ is a powerful Savior. And so, let us savor Him and treasure Him and trust Him. And as we savor His faithfulness, He will empower us to resist the continued unfaithfulness in our lives. And even when we fall and sin and fail, which could very well happen in the future, we once again look up and we see our perfect faithful Savior and His grace lifts us again and we keep going again. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus Christ, we, we just tell you this morning we are unsatisfied with ourselves and with the progress in our lives and we desire greater holiness. And we thank you that, that the way we grow in holiness is simply to savor and delight in you. And that You transform us from the inside out. Thank You, God, that growing in holiness is not about us working harder to do better because we know, Lord, that just doesn't work. We need more of You. And so, Jesus, fill up our hearts. Give us fresh glimpses of who You are to delight in and treasure You. Thank You, Jesus, that You are greater than even Moses, that You are the faithful Son over us who has saved us. We love You and we pray all this in Your name, Jesus.